The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, and as always, uh, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? You're always riddled with COVID co-host, Bethany Ayers. (laughs) (laughs) Are we not past that? What's going on? No, this is week five today, the fifth week from when I was first diagnosed. I finally broke down and talked to a doctor this week. My husband's been trying to convince me to do it for about two and a half weeks. So I'm like, what are they going to tell me? They're going to say anything. Can't be bothered. And then after coughing up a lung, decided to actually talk to a doctor who sent me for a chest x-ray. So waiting for the results. I don't think it'll be anything, but he's said he basically can't tell until he sees an x-ray. So we'll see. So other than the chest x-ray, slightly eventful part of my life, it was also my birthday this week. I have turned 47, which I had thought I was for the last six months. So it's particularly anticlimactic. <laughs> like, oh, I'm still 47. So it's like a bonus year. And then I have a son in boarding school who is not particularly communicative and may or may not have read my husband's messages, my other son's messages, all reminding him that it's my birthday this week. But we are now four days post-birthday and have yet to have a single, not even like a happy (laughs) B-day. In text message form, not even that. (laughs) And to make matters worse, when I had to go to the doctor to collect my referral form for the x-ray, it was a very friendly receptionist. He said, what's your birth date? I said it. He goes, oh, happy birthday for yesterday. (laughs) I'm not taking much offense. It's more humor, but also... His Christmas presents might not be great this year. So your chest x-ray situation just reminded me of a story, which is probably about 10 years ago at this point, uh, during my time at SwiftKey, I was having some discomfort sleeping in a couple of positions for several weeks and initially just chalked it up to my workouts and kind of ignored it as one does. And at some point I realized that it wasn't going away and that this is not normal. I should probably get it checked out. So I did, went to the doctor, he did his little stethoscope check and said to me, look, Brandon, I can't hear your one lung properly, you know, better safe than sorry. Here's a little uh, referral in to get an x-ray. So I went and got the x-ray done, sat down in the waiting room. There was like a thousand people in front of me waiting for their results. And I was called back almost immediately. So I knew there was a bit of a, an issue happening. The doctor took me into the back room, showed me two sets of lungs, one of which was mine and said, spot the difference. One of my lungs had collapsed into a a paper bag, essentially. And at at that point, I'd been walking around with one lung for about four weeks, you know, doing workouts and all sorts of physical activities. I don't know how I did that, to be honest, but it seems a bit crazy now that I think about it. So what he said to me is like, look, you need to get in an ambulance immediately and go to the hospital and get this thing pumped up ASAP. And that's what they did. They stuck a tube down my lung (laughs) and literally pumped it up. And in this case, it was the junior doctor. He had to do the pumping took about 10, 15 minutes. And I think literally there was no difference between that pump and what a bike pump looks like. It's the same same thing that you're doing. Took the tube out, stuck it into a bucket of water. You can see the bubbles coming up from the air pressure from my lung where the puncture was. And once the bubbles stop, your lung has essentially healed itself and then you're done and you're good to go and you're out the door. And what I found out afterwards was that I had a spontaneous pneumothorax, (laughs) uh, which is a random lung collapse, uh, which is a super rare occurrence for anyone. But what they do know is that the characteristics around it are that you're tall, you're white, and you're male, and you're between the ages of 20 and 35. And for myself, I hit three of those four criteria. So lucky me, I was one of the few people on the planet to have a spontaneous pneumothorax. So yeah, that's kind of like my lung chest x-ray story. (laughs) That is so scary (laughs) in so many ways. So the big question I have is the tube to pump it back up. Does it go from 
the outside, down your throat? Where? How do they get the tube into your lung to pump it up? They take the clavicle at the top and they basically pop a hole. And through that clavicle, they take a, a cord and basically like whatever, insert it into your lung effectively. So it's quite rudimentary. It's not like a scientific process. They basically puncture it, stick in the tube, jam it down. I think they, based on their, I guess, their doctor knowledge, they know how to do it correctly to not make it incredibly painful for me. <laughs> Thanks for that story. I think I'm, I'm now horrified. <laughs> the rest of the day, I'll be spent thinking about pumping up lungs like bicycle tires. So on that note, we have a topic called Vision to Value, a deep dive into private equity and the CEO experience that's attached to that. We've got the perfect guest in Pete Harris. He is the CEO of Pipedrive, which was acquired by Vista Equity at the end of 2020. So before we get to Pete, I guess what I wanted to talk about is part of our discussion with Pete, we talk a lot about this question of why, why we do what we do, what is the purpose in what we do, and bringing that to the organization and being able to express that in a very clear, palpable way to the company. I think what I wanted to talk about with you, Bethany, was this concept of why or starting with why, which of course is uh, from the infamous or famous Simon uh, Sinek, depending on how you view him. A couple of questions at hand here. Question number one, when are you at your best, Bethany? When I'm having fun. And of course, there's lots of definitions of fun, but it's when I'm feeling energized. And that's a combination of curious about something and wanting to dig into it more and also doing that with other people. I'm a natural introvert, but I'm an introvert who really likes people. I just don't like a lot of people at altogether. I like individual relationships. <laughs> so it's like a combination of curiosity and relationship. Okay. Curiosity and relationship. Yeah. I think I don't perform well when I feel like I'm uh, fulfilling somebody else's expectations of who they think I should be, if that makes sense. Right. And I think when I perform best, it's when I'm being present within Brandon in a very authentic, real way. And I'm centered within myself and I'm delivering a message that I truly believe in and expressing it. And when that happens, I'm so much better, whether it's a team meeting, board meeting, or being in front of customers, that's always when I perform my best. And as I've gotten older, I've been better at getting into that place of being present within myself to express myself more effectively, I think. Love your answer, Brandon, and particularly love that it's the embodied leadership answer without using the word embodied in any way, but being in your body, nice. <laughs> coming from an like authentic <laughs> place. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So the opposite question, when are you at your worst? Very similar to you. So when I have to be or feel as though I have to be inauthentic or I'm unwilling to take the consequences of expressing myself and my views because they would be unacceptable at that moment. I think in terms of leadership that comes up when you have to disagree and commit. And so you might not actually believe in what you now have to go out and sell to the organization. I really hate that. It might not be me at my worst, but it's me at my worst inside. I hate having to do that. I think when I get tired, I'm not a good Brandon, basically. So sometimes when I've had a really difficult week and there's just been a ton of stuff happening and it gets to like 3 p.m., 4 p.m. at the end of the day, and I'm dealing with yet another problem and another person, I can be short I can not listen very well for sure, you know, and I can be much more abrupt, I think, in terms of my commentary and feedback. If I'm going to go into a meeting with somebody, I need to be ready to have that meeting with that person. And if I'm not ready to do it, I'm much better now at catching myself and canceling the meeting or rescheduling. I th again, I think that's one that comes with age and getting to know yourself and noticing those markers, again, within your body of the short temper, the exhaustion, the lack of resource to deal with other people. No, exactly. Last question. What are you passionate about? And I think you actually kind of referenced this maybe earlier in your other answers, but what is Bethany passionate about? It's a hard question because there's like equality and self-vested interest, equality for women. And I, I'm very motivated by making the world a better place for women and a fairer place and pointing out the inequalities that we often don't see or just accept blindly. Women are still doing 65% of the housework, even in houses where women out-earn men. And 
we end up just culturally accepting this. That's like a passion of an external sort. And then internally, I think about death a lot. I am not religious. I don't believe that there's an afterlife. This one life is all that we have. And so how do I want to shape and live my one life? And that kind of goes back to my original answer, which is I want to have fun. I want to learn and follow my curiosity. And I want to have meaningful relationships with people. But there's like a, I have a litmus test of almost everything of when I'm on my deathbed, will I regret this or not? I was thinking about this question of like, I guess maybe there's two angles to it. Like I've really been into fitness over the course of my life. You know, I I religiously train three or four days a week in terms of, you know, weights and working with a trainer. I used to be really into climbing, indoor and outdoor climbing. And I think what I've realized is that the reservoir of potential that you have is immense. And when you think about, or when I think about, you know, going to my fifth set of deadlifts, rep number eight, and you're killing yourself, basically, you don't realize how far you can go. The trainer's very good because the trainer's going to push me. He's very passionate. He kind of lends that to me, the excitement. And he's the one asking for the next set. And he's the one asking for two more reps in this case. And it's just remarkable if you're in the groove and if you're in the moment and it's feeling good, you can go pretty far in terms of pushing your body pretty hard physically in this sense, much farther than what people think, I think, oftentimes. I think this also kind of equates to more of like the human experience, which is there's all sorts of potential within people to be and and do different things. You know, you don't have to be kept in your past. There's definitely a future in front of you that can be different should you want to exercise those muscles a little bit. And that fascination with the human experience, I think for me personally, you know, has shown up in my interest and fascination around acting, because with acting, you kind of like express yourself physically and emotionally through different characters and do so safely because it's not you per se as it is the character that you're demonstrating in front of you know an audience or with your fellow actors or in this case kind of like the improvisation stuff where it's a bit similar it's like you're exploring the permutations around how you interact with others in a way that is real and authentic but also builds off of each other somebody poses something ridiculous to you you say yes and something else to build on it it just keeps reminding me that there is so much potential within individuals. And when you apply it to a business and somebody that you're coaching or mentoring or line managing in this case, you know, what you see in front of you, there is immense potential in that person to be so much more. And I think that to me is what gets me excited and passionate about working in companies. When you think about it more on an organizational level, it's fulfilling the potential of that organization. Because at the end of the day, when I worked at SwiftKey, we had a phenomenal outcome for that business. Microsoft bought that company for a ridiculous amount of money. And when you think about the people that were there, were we special? Uh, you know, like were we somehow <laughs> uniquely amazing at delivering this, you know, phenomenal outcome? And it really wasn't that at all. It was really just, I think each of us individually and as a team and as an organization had a capacity and ability to fulfill our potential in terms of an organization in this case. And that's what I chase. I chase that for myself. I chase that for others. I chase that for teams and I chase that for companies. That's what I get excited about. It's interesting because yours is, like, I would think of you often as maybe, I don't know, the more analytical or like the less wanting to go there with people versus me. And yet my answer is a bit more, a little bit of the relationship, but a lot of like the intellectual curiosity. And yours is the other way of like the untapped potential of humans and having all people reach it. I think mine's ended up being more of a ideas-based passion and yours is more of a people-based passion. It's interesting just versus kind of what our, our brands are normally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true, isn't it? I don't know. I think in some respects, I feel more awkward talking about it because it doesn't feel so tangible sometimes. Like being a more analytical and functional and pragmatic always seems more real to people somehow, but maybe that's an illusion. I don't know. But to quickly summarize, I was then trying to put together my why. <laughs> it's like, so how does that translate to a why in this case? And the only thing I could actually come up with, and I'll just read this verbatim here, but it was to basically to have the back of people or teams to help them on their journey to fulfill their potential. So I know, Bethany, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but if you had to kind of wrap up your thesis in a, in a sentence, if it's possible. It's interesting. I guess for me, because 
I feel as though nothing exists until we create it. Life can be a game and something fun to play with. And so my why is to create that fun life for me and inspire others to do it as well. Love it. I feel like we're doing like OKRs here. We're trying to create like a simple statement. (laughs) (laughs) It's not measurable. How are we going to measure it? Uh, (laughs) Measurable and time bound. (laughs) Exactly. That is definitely not going to happen. All right. So with that, why don't we uh, transition over to our conversation with Pete Harris and let's talk to Pete about that. I am delighted to welcome Pete Harris to the podcast today. Pete is the COO of Pipedrive, which I'm sure many of you are actually customers of or have considered (laughs) purchasing along the way. So Pete, we are just going to start with a really easy question for you today, which is every COO is different. What does COO mean at Pipedrive? What are you responsible for? Brilliant. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Brandon, I'm delighted that you've seen the tube ads. They're a hit amongst pipe drive employees. Oh, nice. You can't avoid it. It's on every tube carriage, I think. That's awesome. So I was actually listening to uh, one of your other guests previously, Ahmed from uh, Go Cardless, and I thought his answer was brilliant around what does a coup do and the fact that really it's just different in every organization and it depends on the match and the match between the person looking for the role and the business and the business needs. At Pipedrive, I was very specific, both with Dominic, our CEO, and Vista, who are the private equity owners of Pipedrive, on what the role would be and why it would be that way. And so for me, it's largely commercial. So I look after our sales teams, our partner teams, which are reseller partners, so like a one-to-many relationship. I look after customer success, who help our largest customers get the value from our product. And finally, customer support. So they are our or my people responsibilities. But I'm also responsible for our value creation plan more generally. So that's the business strategy of how are we realizing value over the next four to five years. And finally, and an area I find really exciting, actually, is I'm currently leading our AI initiatives. So this is all about how do we use AI internally in Pipedrive to become more efficient and to do more and basically have more fun because we get to automate many of the boring tasks, repetitive tasks, and then free people up to do more of the intelligent-based tasks. Uh, Just a quick follow-up on the titling nomenclature for the role itself. Is there a particular reason why it was called CO versus, let's say, Chief Commercial Officer? What was the distinguishing marks, do you think, as to why the CO title made more sense in this case? I think it was a mixture of what was required by the business. And this may be a slight tweak. I'd love your opinions on this later over the PE versus VC versus other types of ownership. Because my role originally was very sales focused. It was sales team and it was partner team. And it was transforming those into really operationally efficient arms of our business. And then it extended into the customer success, customer support. So initially, it probably was a bit more uh, CRO, like chief revenue officer, and then chief customer officer. And then we've actually combined those two into my role. And then my responsibilities are, are now very much focused on the commercial side and also supporting our customers. So it could be both. It's interesting because it's very similar to my career path at Peak except that I started as CRO, then chief customer officer, and then COO. But moving into COO became more back office and operations focused rather than building out the commercial side. I I had a question around the AI initiatives. Does that mean that you're responsible for all internal operations? Yeah, in a way it does. So I often joke with the CEO because I have permission, if you like, to sort of poke around in any area of the business. And that's what I love about being a chief operating officer. You really get to understand and uncover all of the different parts of our business to see where is opportunity. And when it comes to AI, of course, that can be anywhere. It can be doing anything. It's all about where do we see the opportunity to optimize and use AI as an enabler for that to happen. So uh, to a certain extent, yes. It can be very broad. 
And then also, of course, I'm starting with my own areas of responsibility and my own functions to make sure that we optimize for, for the commercial arms as well. And then this may be uh, fairly straightforward now that you've explained your remit as a CEO, but when it comes to the P investor, what is it that they want out of you in terms of your role? And how do you think you're being evaluated? Like, What are the markers for good success for Pete in the CEO role for Pipedrive? I feel like we can apply different lenses to this. So if I look at what's our PE after from me, it's very much to think about our value creation plan. And would you say that's a term just for PE or did you have similar terms like that within the VC world as well? We don't have a similar term. So I was just assuming that value creation is basically like your model, your budget, your model and your three to five year plan. Exactly. It's like the PE term, I guess, for how do you create value within the business that they've acquired? And so what we've done, and, and we went on a journey with Vista right at the start of this, was to say, what are the elements of our value creation plan that we want to realize over the next four to five years? And then you split those, and there are, there are six of them for us. And then what we get to be able to say is, which of those elements are we going to do in what order? What are the outcomes of those going to be? And so on and so on. When we think about what's success for me, I look after certain elements of those value creation plans that I'm responsible for. So to give you an example, I own the net revenue retention number for Pipedrive, the churn numbers, 90% of the revenue number. So for me, success very much looks like delivering against that value creation plan. And that's ultimately how at the end of the day, they're going to realize and we are going to realize the value upon an event, whenever that may be. So that's like point number one, I guess. Point number two is very much around building a business for the future. So it can be tempting to think of life as a kind of four-year cycle or a five-year cycle. But of course, what you're building is something that will go on somewhere else and be something else. So you've got to make sure that you're investing in the long term as well to build that sustainable platform. So this is not about optimizing, asset stripping, anything like that. This is about building a really solid business that can just go from strength to strength over the longer term. Does that resonate with where you've been or is that maybe slightly different from the experiences that you've had? I think there's lip service that that's what we're doing. And in reality, it's trying to grow as absolutely quickly as possible, spend as much money as possible (laughs) to then raise again and keep on the hyper growth. It's going to change in the new market, but... Yeah, because I feel like the typical cycles for venture capital is, for the most part, on average, you get your funding, you have 18 to 24 months to prove out the next metric set. It's almost like more short-term focus than what you just described in a sense, because it's less about a five-year outcome of flipping the business at that point, as opposed to you've got cash for two years, you're going to burn it for two years, and you better deliver that next metric set to get to the next round, essentially. So there very much is like a short-term thinking in terms of how do we make that happen? How is that going to occur in this business? That's interesting because we talked a little bit about the difference between VC and PE. And I think that from the PE side, there's an investment difference potentially, where if VCs are earlier stage, maybe lower ticket, whereas PE is a bit later stage. And, and certainly, you know, working with Vista, they tend to be businesses that are generally profitable, making money. They've got product market fit. They understand their customers and they're on that growth trajectory. And then the money, therefore, is all about how do you scale that as quickly as possible versus potentially in VC world, earlier investments, finding your feet a little bit, burning more cash. Maybe margin is less important at that point in time. You know what's funny about the margin part of it? I always felt that uh, if you're at 80%, it was like, that was it. I didn't care about that number at all. It was just like gross margin, 80% or fluctuating between 78 and 82. You're like, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> uh, then it was all about how do we grow the company as opposed to the margin part of it. And what we never think about is EBITDA. Yeah, I mean, EBITDA is incredibly important for private equity. It's essentially, and especially at the moment, the way the market is. I'd, but I'd be curious of your view, and I'll ask you the question. Is one point of growth more valuable than one point of margin in today's world? When we say margin, we just think about gross margin. And as Brandon says, as long as it's fine enough. In venture, again, I'm just caveating this, that the new world is very different and we'll see how it unfolds. But in the past 10 years, you basically can use EBITDA as your proxy for how much cash you're burning. And it's always negative and it doesn't matter. All that matters is your ARR growth. And all valuations are based on it. 
it's been really interesting because if we've looked at events and how they happen, whether that's an IPO, whether it's just a strategic sale, whatever that looks like, we talk a lot now about the point of growth versus the point of margin and how, how valuable is each and therefore what might you do in your plans in order to optimize. And the reality is there's not an awful lot between them. You need to be growing at a decent rate. And at the same time in private equity, you want your margin to be strong so that it gives you that option then for a business that wants a high growth business or a profitable business. It just opens the doors. You're not closing any doors by only having one and not the other. So do you actually live by the rule of 40? Does the rule of 40 still exist? And again, just for any listeners to explain what it is, is it's the growth rate and the margin. So percentage of EBITDA. So if you have a 20% margin and 20% growth rate, that's 40. And it can be five and 35. <laughs> it should be longer than it should have and anything in between. So Pete, I'm just like, it's quite a contentious number in, in the VC world. I'm wondering if it still exists for PE. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. And it can be rule of 40 is the, the kind of the most well-known one, but it can be rule of 50, rule of 60, whatever it is. And absolutely, like 40 is considered the baseline, but absolutely it's how do you do it and in what combination do you do it? So we know some of our competitors, for example, are growing very heavily and could be growing at sort of 80, but then also not making the money on the margin and be at minus 10, for example, or worse. And it evens out then to be around, you know, the 60 or 50. Whereas other companies and, and pipe drive in particular, we tend to be more balanced and have a balanced approach towards our growth rate and our margin so that we can play with both and you can fluctuate both according to what's important in the market right now, like what's attractive. And you could easily argue that a point of margin is more assured than a point of growth because growth is hard. You've got to get customers. You've got to convert them. You've got to expand them. You've got to keep them. That's hard. But with margin, if you decide, actually, I'm not going to recruit that person, that's straight to margin. And you can keep doing that. And that's the balancing act of how do you grow the business at an attractive growth rate whilst managing your margin at an attractive rate, but without stagnating the machine, without stalling the machine. And that's the real delicate balance that we're constantly battling with, with our plans in, in a PE world. Yeah, that makes sense. And then maybe a, a different question, also clarification, uh, VC versus P in this case, but all venture capital companies for the most part are founder-led and they're built off the vision of that founder, the mission of that founder, really the purpose. Why do we get up in the morning? And that galvanizes the business, that galvanizes the internal employees. How does that differ when you have a thousand person P back company? I don't know if it does. So Pipedrive is obviously founder-led. We had our five founders based out of Estonia. The initial investment was through VC. So they went through those cycles. And then upon private equity, when Vista bought Pipe Drive out in 2020, the last founder then left. And that culture, the roots, especially within somewhere like Pipe Drive, which is a very proud Estonian company. And Estonia is very well known for creating quite a few unicorns that do very well. And by nature, because the country is quite small, they have to be global from day one. And so with all of that cultural significance, I feel like with a business like Pipedrive, we are still very founder-led, even though the founders aren't here. So their legacy lives on in the values, in the mission, et cetera, et cetera. So that, in a way, can be its own value within a company. And you've got to hold on to that. That's what makes a company unique and special, is when you walk into it and you have a feel. And it's difficult to monetize that. It's difficult to put a number on that, but it's what attracts the best talent. It's what means people want to work here, want to stay here, and want to build their careers here. So from a private equity perspective, I'm not sure whether there is a difference between if it's VC, private equity, I think founder-led plays a role. And as they leave, if you can hang on to some of that as you grow, then that becomes very important. The challenge, of course, is that you're a thousand-person business. You are no longer a startup you will start to have enterprise contracts come in place. You'll start to have processes which feel very unlike a smaller business, a scale-up business. And that's important because you've got compliance obligations, regulatory obligations, people obligations. So the business naturally has to change. And that can be an interesting dynamic for people that have been around for a while. So I think not just the founder-led element, but like cult of personality 
And so I feel like most of the businesses that I've been in, there's been a very charismatic leader and that has been a large part of it. And then I was in the Salesforce ecosystem for a long time, which again, I know probably shouldn't bring up Salesforce today with Pipedrive, but another very charismatic founder leader who has stayed. Do you have a charismatic leader? Does it matter if that person is a founder or not? Look, I'd say no, being perfectly blunt. Your original founder is probably, it's their baby. It's their creation. It's very difficult to replicate that when an external person then comes in and tries to take over. And I think it would be fake. I don't think it would be authentic. And that's really important. I'd say no, but I don't think that's a problem. And I think at various stages of businesses, you need a certain type of leader. And now that we're into the thousand person business, we're owned by private equity. We are on this journey. Potentially, you want someone that's been there before that understands what needs to happen, that gets EBITDA and that understands margin and so on and so on. That's really important. And I'm not saying that founders can't do that, but not all of them are the right fit to take on that next stage of the journey. And that's okay. So I think that the founder-led legacy can live on, and I think that's really important down to the kind of soul of a company. But who leads it and what that looks like can be quite different. So this question is like, how do you motivate people? I'm so used to seeing the founder-led story that I'm almost struggling to imagine what it's like. How do you motivate everyone? What's the story? Why do people come to Pipedrive? Yeah, and I can get quite deep here. And tell me if I go too deep. I truly believe in your purpose and understanding your why and why are you passionate about this? You know, why are you doing a podcast? What is it that you're trying to get out of this and uncover and educate or whatever it may be? So why do you get up in the morning and go to your job? I think that's really important to understand your why. And by the way, this isn't a chief operation officer thing. It's, I believe it should be for everyone to understand why you're going to work and doing what you do. That's really important because I think compensation and incentive obviously plays a role. Of course it does. But if you're going to work because you're constantly learning and because you're constantly with people that are role models for you and you're with a manager that teaches you things you didn't know before and is helping you understand what you may go to next, that's invaluable. And some people pay to have mentors. They pay to have coaches But if you get that within a work environment, you're getting it for for free, if you like. You're seeing this in in action, in reality, to solve real world problems. And so I think it's really important to understand why you're going to work. Now, if you're going to work for the money, and that's okay, but if it's purely for the money, then you'll probably go down a route that's slightly different. You may not need to enjoy work because you're doing it for a different reason. You're purely doing it for the paycheck. So I think it's a balance. And for me, it's very hard to answer that question with a a sure answer because everyone's different. And I'd almost flip it back to you and say, like, when you're in this position or even with this podcast, what's your why? What incentivizes you to do what you do? The purpose matters more than the vision to me. The vision is, you know, what do we want this company to look like in five years? The mission is, how do we get there? But the purpose is to, like, what cause do we believe in? And why do I get up in the morning to do this? That's incredibly motivating to me and incredibly powerful. And I feel like, as Bethany talked about, having a charismatic founder that can really galvanize the business in a way around that and get people excited by that, including myself, becomes extremely important. There's a a self-delusion that the founders usually have in a good way where they're so incredibly focused, so incredibly excited by their particular product and their particular opportunity in front of them. They can almost uh, irrationally get people excited in a very real way. And I think that to me is what I look for. That's what I want to feel. And when I head into a work week on the Monday, that's what I want to be a part of. And I've always made an assumption. And the assumption has been that in scale-up companies, that's where you find that. You don't find that elsewhere. And I guess maybe this is the, the question we're asking you a little bit, which is, can that feeling, that sustained feeling, be found in a private equity-based company? I love what you said there, by the way, and I'm nodding my head, because the answer is 100% yes. But it has to be aligned. You have to want your purpose to be aligned with the mission and the purpose of what that business is doing. So the reason I get out of bed every morning, my personal why and this will sound a little egotistical, it's not meant to, but it's to make an impact on the world. And for me, that means various things. It can mean helping small businesses, which is what I do every day at Pipedrive. It can mean teaching my kids the right ethics and values. It can mean lots of different things in the way that I go about it. 
And then my how, like, how do I do that? I do that by being a role model. And for me, that means being a charismatic leader. So with my teams, I want to pump them up every day on their mission, whether it's in sales, partner, customer success, support, AI, doesn't matter. If I can be charismatic, if I can be that leader without being the founder, then I'm kind of filling that gap as we scale up. I think that's critically important. And then you get down to your what, and ultimately your what is delivering what you need to do. It's your day-to-day. You know, the what at PipeDrive is it's a SaaS product that customers use to grow their business. That's the what, and that's the outcome bit of it. So going back to the why, I think it's critically important for all of us to get pumped up by that. Now, a founder-led is undoubtedly the, for me anyway, it's the highest level. As I say, it's their baby, it's their passion, it's everything for them. Maybe it gets a bit diluted as you go down. And I'm sure I can't speak as passionately about some of the elements of pipe drive that one of the founders would and be able to tell stories about where it came from and why this feature turned out the way that it did, etc. That's very difficult to replicate. But as I say, you don't want to fake it either. You need the authenticity there in order to do it properly. Perfect. So different question. I have this imagination of boards for PE-back companies just being much more micromanaging, controlling around the numbers, what needs to happen in the business. Whereas VCs, for the most part, on average, there's way more latitude and kind of space for the founder to make mistakes. So maybe you can kind of clarify the experience of a PE-backed board and what that looks like for you. My experience working with PE, your first question, is it controlling? I don't see it as controlling in the slightest. It's not as if we're being told it needs to be this, it needs to be that, go away and work out this, go away and work out that. We are given absolute freedom. Now, that could be the PE firm that we're working with versus others. And the reputation that private equity can have is very different, I've found, to the reality of working with the likes of Vista, for example. But I wouldn't say they're controlling. What they want is confidence. So confidence in me, confidence in us as a team, confidence that we are just on the business and understand it. So in a board session, although we have our agenda, you need to be ready for it to go absolutely anywhere. And it can go absolutely anywhere with any type of question. And the type of question is probably quite different in some ways. So it is quite metrics driven. So what's the LTV to CAC of the sales motion? How are you thinking about the EBITDA growth in this scenario? How are you thinking of a point of margin versus a point of growth? And what would that mean overall for the rule of 40 growth rates, et cetera, et cetera? So it can go in lots of different directions. And it, generally speaking, the way that we run it is quite formal. So it's, a, it's an agenda. We rehearse it. We practice it. We make sure that we show up as a team and it's world-class answers so that we give that confidence. And I think that means that we get the freedom to kind of just run the business. Go away and do what you want to do because we're aligned on where we want to go. And that's absolutely fine. Would you say that's a little different from VC and some of the experiences you've had? Definitely like the rehearsing it ahead of time part. I, I, I want to go into that one. Like how often are your meetings and how much rehearsing are you talking about? <laughs> we have quarterly meetings and we would get together probably two weeks before to run through the agenda and to align on the narrative to make sure that we're all very consistent in what we're saying and how we want it to be. So that would be like the, the skeleton of the board deck, if you like. And then we may meet then a week or a few days beforehand to say, right, let's just run through it and challenge each other and say, do we think we've got this right? Are there any holes within this story? Do we think that we're being bold enough in this area? To be honest, I'd run any meeting like that. I think it's critical. If you've got an important meeting, you should rehearse, you should prepare, you should make sure that everything's buttoned up in the right way. And so it's not overly like, let's make sure that we stand up tall and we we deliver everything perfectly the way we're going to deliver it. It's not that at all. It's more about let's make sure that as a team, we've got that connection, that alignment, and we challenge each other where we disagree and we bottom it out. And then we agree how we're going to deliver it and how we're going to come across. It's actually really helpful because I find that in the middle of a fundraise, everybody always complains about how distracting fundraises are. But I think that they're actually massively valuable because it's a time where you have to think through your strategy. You really need to check your metrics, realize what you don't have. And it sounds like you're doing that almost on a quarterly basis. It's a way of checking in on what matters most. Because sometimes almost in a, in a weekly cadence, the day-to-day happens and you forget about the rest of this. So it, it actually, it makes a lot of sense. 
our board meetings, or at least my the board meetings that I've attended are very different. The board deck seems is pretty much the same every time, yeah, or at least like the top part with all the metrics. And so that's just done, wrote, and then you choose your agenda topics that are separate to that. I think there's also a different dynamic because for the most part, VCs are not majority stakeholders and you know, the founders still own most of the business and are the main voters. That's a key difference, right? And what's the challenge like? So would you say that it's more of a delivery or do you get the conversational back and forth and the, the kind of engagement and challenge? Different level of engagement and challenge because for the most part, they're investors and not ex-operators. And so their challenge is what they've seen on another board or what they've heard of rather than their own personal experiences, which is where an NED is super helpful, like a former operator who can help support and challenge where investors get to be very helpful is preparing for another fundraise or another event where it's all about investment banking and then they shine and you can see them all light up on the strategies on what should we be doing for more money. There is a commonality, which is what you said at the outset, confidence is extremely important. The board needs to feel confident in the founder. They need to feel confident in the leadership team to pull off that quarter's results or that year's results or whatever the case might be. So I think that's the same. I think that I've had two different setups. I'll talk about the one that's better, I think, for the most part, which is what Bethany talked about. Usually all the numbers are packaged up and pre-shipped for them to look at. The meeting is really, here are the numbers, ask some questions, let's put that to the side, and now let's have a real conversation around the two or three challenges of the business and really think that through in some depth. And at that point, You'll have your pre-read that you've already sent out, that they've already read, presumably. That at that point, you're going to go into some deep dive conversations around those two or three subjects to really get the board to contribute to the thinking around how do we solve these things? What's the best way forward for whatever those two or three things are? And from their perspective, what their view is on, on how to move the ball forward in that case. You actually raise a good point there, Brandon, on um, the link between on our board, for example, we have the operating partners that are working with lots of different companies like this, seeing lots of different things. They're able to make those connections and challenge constructively in a certain way. That's incredibly valuable to know that they've run businesses in the past and they're seeing a portfolio of companies operating in a certain way that they can advise us on. And then you've got the investment side and the investment partners and the investment team are there to say, we bought this business under certain hypotheses and theses. We're trialing, we're checking. Is it becoming true? Is it aligned to where we want to go? Is it when I come to think of an, an event, are we on the right path that will make this really easy for me? Or am I going to have some struggles over certain areas of this business that we need to dive into a bit more? I really find those two roles help us from a different angles and different perspectives that maybe we don't see in as clearly or as easily as we would do. Yeah. And I think the, the final difference is there's just a much more regular meeting cadence. So it's either monthly or two times in a quarter rather than once a quarter, which is where I was asking about the the rehearsing, because if it was monthly, like that's quite a bit <laughs> time to take out of it. And also just a very different cadence. Yeah, absolutely. And many of the team from Vista, we, we, we talk to them individually every week or every two weeks, just around topics that are, are on top of mind for us. And like I said, it's really acting like advisors to help us then understand what they're seeing elsewhere that may be useful and make those connections. Like if you're PE firm that's got 200 businesses under, under your control, then brilliant. Like you should make those connections and make the introductions. And someone in that portfolio is going through the same problem that you've got that has solved it in a really innovative way that you can learn from. And that's what I love about, here's what I'm working on. Can you connect me with three people going through something similar? And ordinarily that works really well. Yeah. And we get that as well from the investors. And also you'll normally have two, three, four funds. And so it's all of their portfolios to draw upon. So very similar. Different question. When it comes to compensation, what's your approach to compensation in a P-back company in this case? Because obviously in a venture capital company, EMI share grants, which are very favorable in the UK, is a key part of the compensation for employees. And if you communicate it well, it can be quite a powerful incentive in particular for leadership and for middle management. And when you don't have that, or it's a different way of approaching compensation, I guess, what is that and how is that attractive? This plays tightly into my comments before around 
what's important for you and hence the type of talent that you attract. But when you do attract the talent, you know, compensation, generally speaking, is around options. And of course, they're not realized until an event of some kind happens, whether that's an IPO or whether that's a strategic sale or a change of ownership. And those options will then be vested and realized that you're multiple for whatever the business is sold for. So it's quite a simple, you get the options, they vest over a certain period of time, an event takes place, and then you get the multiples of them. They will be issued, generally speaking, reserved for top management. So probably your directors, VPs, and executives. It's not unusual to have middle management also involved in that and some of the more juniors, especially if they've been in the business for a while. So if they've been for 10 years, for example, under the founders and have then gone through the various stages, that's not unusual. But in order to attract talent lower down and um, early stage career, for example, I think it, for me, it comes back to the purpose question again of like, why do you want to work in private equity? And what are you expecting to see? And what's the journey you're expecting to be on here? Not every business is VC or private equity. It's not unusual for someone, you know, I started my career at Deloitte. I joined Deloitte on what was an okay salary, starting salary. It wasn't amazing, but I joined because I knew that the experience that I would get would be very valuable then throughout my career. And indeed it was. And so you you join a business based on what you're hoping to get out of it. I think we're just so soaked in VC for so long that you forget about, I have to like remember the start of my career and what was I looking for and how does the world work outside of this little ecosystem? <laughs> So we're unfortunately running out of time, but have a final question for you, unless it's a really interesting answer, in which case we might have a couple follow-up questions afterwards. For our listeners, what is the one thing they should take away from our conversation with you? I've said it a few times, but I highly recommend sitting down with a blank sheet of paper, drawing Simon Sinek circle of why, you know the one, you've got the middle, which is the why. You've got the how and then you've got the what. And I think it's critically important that everyone can sit down and map out what what are they doing, why are they doing what they're doing, and then what or how are they doing it, and then what are they actually doing, and mapping it out then for the future. Because what I found, and I don't know, you know, generally speaking, if your listeners are, I assume, are of various levels in their career. And if I look back, you know, sort of five, 10 years ago, going through that exercise to say, I know that this is what I want to do eventually. I know that I believe chief operating officer is like my calling because I love complex problems. I love blank sheets of paper. I love sticking my hand up when no one else will to do a problem and try and get involved in it. I think it stems from early days of playing golf and trying to play a ball out of a bunker. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Never expecting to get it out. But you go in there and you give it a go because no one else will. And I think then you can put yourself in situations that will help you progress your career and get to where you want to get to. And it doesn't matter for me if you're a seasoned chief executive, chief operating officer, it doesn't matter. We've all got what we want to do next in our head and we all want to get to that satisfaction. We want to make sure that appetite is is full. And so just planning that out, I think is absolutely critical. You're mostly talking about career, but I assume you're talking wider than career for also the why of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can be your navigation system for everything. And so when I've got a hard decision, I shared my why earlier, which is to make an impact on the world. And my how is to be a role model. And so if I don't do that, then I'm going against my why, my purpose, my very being. And so if I've got hard decisions to make, I can always use those as my guidance system as to making a decision. And I find it really comforting and I find it really useful to be able to do that. So whenever I take on a new team, I always sit down with them to say, what's your why? And it doesn't have to be career. It can be anything. And then I even had one person that back in the days at Intuit that said, I just, I love dogs, Pete. And my dream job is to set up a sanctuary for dogs, for stray dogs. I feel like that's my being. And I was like, well, why are you here? And she said, well, I'm working here to raise, you know, earn the money to then be able to one day do that. I was like, that's brilliant. So let's work out how we put you in situations and how we can progress your career, how we can help you get passionate and engaged and energized to get to your why by doing that. 
And in the end, she set up a community, like a We Care and Give Back style, so that then we arranged offsites there to go and help the dogs every so often. And it was phenomenal. And it's just understanding that person's why that kept them energized then throughout their life and their career that suddenly became this whole mission for them. So I think you'll uncover so much when you start to ask the right questions of your team and of your your friends and family as to what their why is. It sounds easy. The question is just, what's your why? But I'm trying to answer my why, and I have no idea. I think my driving force is in imagining what my deathbed and what regrets I'm going to have and not have, and that's how I decide things. I don't know if that means that my why is to have no regrets on my deathbed, except that I don't know that it's like an unreasonable expectation. Have you had people who have a bit of resistance? How do you help us get over that? I actually think it's really personal. And so, like I said to you, my, my why is to make an impact on the world. And you could go, oh, whatever. What does that mean even? But an impact on the world could be not dropping litter. It could be opening the door for someone that's struggling. They're the little minute moments that matter. And so for you, if your guidance system is, is no regrets on your deathbed, then just imagine the next decision that you make. And you think about, will I regret this? Is this the, you know, the Amazon one-way door, two-way door? Like, can I just do this and not regret it? Or is this a big decision that there's no going back when I've done this? And then you get to apply your values, which are really important, your, your ethics, and what would you do if no one's looking, to then understand and, and sort of inform that decision. So I think take some time, sit down with it and play around with it. It's not easy and it may change. But I was actually listening, Bethany, to the previous intro on the podcast with the coup of go card list. And you were telling a little bit about your, you know, your health decisions. And I absolutely loved that because it gives an insight into how you think. And therefore, if you apply your why to some of what you just said there about gray hair, for example, and you go, why did I do this? Is this a regrettable decision? Hell no. I'm good with this. It's fine. It's just go do. And if other people have a problem with it, it doesn't matter. And that's the beauty of this. It's your why and you own it. You know, you don't have to tell people about it. And it doesn't matter what they think. Perfect. Excellent. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Pete, for joining us on the Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And we will see you next week. 